You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. So I remember, uh, I grew up in actually a a wonderful family. Um, Every every, like February, we grew up in uh, New York and we would take a trip either down to Florida or a few times we went out to Arizona. And I remember our first trip to the Grand Canyon. Has anybody been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah, so um, the first trip to the Grand Canyon, um, there was a storm that was setting in, and I remember us going to um, one of the overlooks, and it was complete fog. And so you can look at this next picture. Um, This is really what we saw. Um, This is an exact picture. I was 10. We didn't have cell phones that took pictures at the time, right? I couldn't find the film. But uh, it looked very like this. And and I remember being on an edge where we kind of saw some some rock surfaces. And and we kept trying to go over and look and see what we could see. But it was nothingness. I mean, literally, it was just foggy. Um, And so we couldn't see the Grand Canyon. You're taking this big trip as a family to the Grand Canyon. I mean, you want to see the Grand Canyon. Um, and so we went back to our hotel, and then there was a storm that set in. And so this storm set in, and we were like in our hotel for days, and we couldn't go back to the Grand Canyon. And so the, when the storm had passed, we went back to the Grand Canyon uh, and went to that same overlook, and this is what we saw. Now, when you have a vivid memory of walking up to this edge and looking over because you couldn't see anything, And then all of a sudden, you stand near that. I mean, it literally takes your breath away. It almost looks like there's a Thomas Kincaid painting in front of you because it is just this gorgeous, magnificent view of something that you you can't, your eyes can literally not wrap their minds around the magnitude and the depth and, and how it just stretches as far as your eye can see. And we didn't go near that edge anymore. Like, there was something that overtakes you in that moment where you're like, I'm not going there. Um, Because when we couldn't see, we were as close as we could get. But once we could see, we were far away. And this is very similar to how life is, because there's these signs that we have at life uh, in life, and these are over at the Grand Canyon. These are, these are signs that you see kind of all over any rock cliff surfaces. But it says, keep away from the edge. And the word of God tells us that same thing. It tells us to keep away from the edge, but we are the type of people that like to play by the edge. We like to take selfies by the edge. We like to get as close as we can without falling over. But the warning that we're gonna see today from the life of Lot is that getting close to the edge can and will kill you. And we need to stay away from the edge. And so let me pray for us as we dive into the word of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to open it up and hear your voice in a country where we are free to do so. I pray we never take that for granted. God, I know my tendency to go close to the edge. And so I pray that if there's anybody here in this room that's like me, that we would learn a valuable lesson from looking at the life of Lot. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So over the last few weeks, we've been in this series, Forgiven Failures, and we've been looking at the lives of these people that we see in Scripture. These, I just want to be clear, these are not characters. 
Characters are in a movie and they're fake. These are real people and these are really their stories, their testimonies of how they lived their life and how God, even though they were failures, redeemed them, gave them grace, mercy, and love. We join a long line of people, real people who were failures. We join them as failures, and we have similar stories to them because we fail, and God has given us the opportunity for redemption through Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So we enter into Genesis 13. So here's kind of the, the setting that, that Carolyn read for us, itch, which is there's Abraham and there's Lot. So God calls Abraham, his name at the time was Abram, God calls him to go to a place. He doesn't tell him where to go. He said, I'm gonna make you the father of many nations and I'm gonna bless you and your family. He's like, I want you to go. And so he goes in faith. He takes along his nephew, Lot. And so at this time, Abram and Sarai, they don't have any kids, but they have a lot of stuff. They have people who are uh, what the Bible would say is servants. Um, they have uh, livestock. They have extended family, brothers and sisters and nephews and nieces. And so they pack up and they pack up their herds and their stuff and they head off to where God says, but they don't really know where they're going. They're just going. And so they get to this place where uh, they settle down for a season I don't know the exact time on a season, but they're settling in for a season. And Lot has some stuff. Some herd, some cattle, some people with him. Abram has some stuff. And I would probably say, just by reading through the book of Genesis, that Abram has more stuff. He's kind of the older, more wealthy, more established person at the time. Um, but in the midst of this travel they start to have this dissension. So the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram, they start fighting with one another. See, animals need food and food comes from grass and different things. And so, so they're arguing because they don't have enough pasture for these animals to feed. And so Abram takes Lot, because Lot is the leader at this point. And as a servant leader, he takes Lot up to this place where they can kind of see the land around them. And he says, you choose. As a good leader should, right? Like, he, he says, you know what? You have your pick. You get the first pick. You go right, I go left. You go left, I go right. But you can have the first pick. And so Lot looks around. And that's where we enter into this story. Because Lot begins to allow his flesh to overcome him. And there's three very specific things that we're going to see here. Three reasons what, that led to Lot's failure. Because he looks and he's enticed by, by beauty. And he knew what the warning signs were. But then he goes and he bunks up on the edge. Look at verse 10 with me. Genesis 13, verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes. And he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So here are three reasons that led to Lot's failure. This, this led to the, the why in why he didn't keep away from the edge. 
So the first thing we see here is that his eyes deceived him. We can relate to this because our eyes do the same. He lifted up his eyes and he saw something, something that, that enticed him, that lured him in, that engaged a part of him that he began to desire something. His eyes began to deceive him. The Bible says that the eyes are a gateway to our soul. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Our eyes deceive us. They entice us. We, they begin to lust after what they see. Now, I know that often that word lust is, is portrayed as from a man to a woman or a woman to a man. Like there's this, this, this desire that forms, but this could also be other stuff too. It's a hunger for anything, a lust for power, for success, for wealth. There's a deep craving inside of us and our eyes are the gateway to those emotions. I don't know if you've ever seen a baby run around. I know Everett uh, likes to run around sometimes, and Everett is one of the most curious babies I've ever seen in my life. And I would guess, I don't know if the Wilkies have, have dealt with this before, um, but if they were ever near a campfire, um, I know that kids, when they see that, they don't know hot. They just know something that is super intriguing, something that is desirable, something that their eyes see that they want. And so what do children do that don't know that a fire is hot? They go close to it. They go near it. They try to touch it. And that's what we do with the things of this world. Our eyes see them, and it lures us in like, like, a, like a fish on a hook. It entices us to trap us. Our eyes are the gateway to our hearts and our souls and our eyes deceive us. Our eyes deceive us of the things of God. Our eyes blind us to the things of God and, and the world tries to lure us away from God through our eyes. I think um, when our eyes are deceiving the things of God and our eyes are deceiving the things of the world, um, there's this theologian in the fourth century, his name is Jerome, um, and this is what he says, he says, Light views, right, our eyes, if we're thinking about our eyes, light views of sin induce false views of God. And I would say it's the other way around. Light views of God induce false views of sin. What happens is we begin to not see our sin for what it is against a holy God. We begin to rationalize and minimalize and justify our own sin. And, and so what that does is it almost belittles our view of who God is. We begin to, to think less of the sin, and because of that, we have a false view of who God is. So we say God is love, but then when we say it is sinful for a man to be with a man or a woman to be with a woman, then it's like, well, then that means God's not love. We begin to, to lighten up sin, and therefore, we begin to diminish who God is and have a false view of who God is. And this trickles and changes and goes upon every facet of our lives. We begin to rationalize and minimalize and justify our sin. And when we do that, 
We forget who God is because our eyes are deceiving us. And no matter how pretty and lush things look, the Bible says we must run from sin. But when our eyes deceive, then it begins to change and transform our hearts and our desires and the things that we think we need and want. And that means our hearts begin to covet. Look at the rest of verse 10. The Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. You know, our world is in this mantra of follow your heart. That is, that is what every post and every commercial and every thing that you see in the world right now is that if you want it and your heart desires it, then you can have it. But our hearts covet. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Do you believe that about your heart? Because you could sit here and rationalize and justify, well, it's not always. I mean, I do nice things for people. I, I, I care for people around me. I take out my neighbor's trash. I mow their lawn. You know, it's like we, we begin to, to think highly of ourselves, and so we don't realize that our, our hearts are actually sinful. Like, there are moments in my day when the girls that I love around me, I've got four beautiful daughters and an amazing, beautiful wife but they annoy me because they stop me from doing the things I want to do. They hinder what I want. And because of that, they're an inconvenience to me, and so I get angry or upset or I get frustrated. Why? Because I'm selfish at my core. And if you don't think that's you, you've fooled yourself somehow. We are people who are after things for ourselves. We are selfish beings, and our hearts covet things around us and cause us into all these sins. Coveting is this, I want this, I'm going to get it. It's yearning to possess or have something. There's, um, in different countries, there are uh, animals called monkeys. Anybody know what a monkey is? Okay, so, so in these countries, they try to trap monkeys often. Um, I don't know if they want them as pets or, or if they eat them, I don't know. But they have these monkey traps. You know how simple a monkey trap is? Like, I don't know if you're a fisherman, but it's not easy to catch fish. Like, but, but in these countries, it's, it's fairly easy. It's, it's, it's basically a piece of string that they tie to a tree or something that's solid into the ground, and they usually hollow out or, or cut off the top of a coconut, um, and inside that, they put some food that they know the monkey's gonna want. And so what happens is, is this hole in this contraption is just big enough for the monkey to slide his hand into. But then what the monkey does is, is the monkey grabs whatever's in it. When it grabs whatever's in it, it cannot get its hand out of the trap. Okay, are we following here? Now, do you know what the monkey has to do to get the hand out of the trap? Just has to let go of the thing in there, pull his hand out, okay? That's what the monkey would need to do. But what the monkey does is gets his hand in, grabs the thing, and then starts trying to pull and can't get it out, and he starts getting really frustrated. And then the hunter, 
who's in hiding comes out and starts approaching the monkey. This is where coveting comes in. The monkey doesn't realize that the hunter's there for him. The monkey thinks that the hunter's after what he has, the prize in his hand. And so he begins to hold on even tighter. And he starts yelling and screaming, trying to get this thing out because he doesn't want the hunter to have it. And he doesn't realize that the hunter's after him. When our hearts covet, it traps us in sin. We covet what others have. I believe this is why culturally we are so entitled. We want what we want and we want it now and we will do everything and anything we want to do to get it. Do not let the devil steal your contentment. We are always looking around at what everybody else has. Kids, we are always looking around at what everyone else has. We made a rule in our family very recently, and we said, you are not allowed to say the word fair. And if they say the word fair, they get a tally. And that means the whole thing. We can talk about that later. But it comes out of our mouths all the time. That's not fair. She got more than me. And we see it in kids because they're not great at masking their sin as well as we are, but we do it too. I'm, I'm just really good at masking it. I'm, I think I would say, like, I'm experienced enough. I probably have my, like, either master's or doctorate in fairness. Why? Because I look around and I see what everybody else has and I think, but I deserve that. I want that. I should have that and our hearts covet. And this, this is what Lot does. I mean, he's got an uncle who he's traveling with who heard from God. I'd imagine there's maybe a little jealousy there. Right, and then, and then what? They're, they're, they're traveling and, and he's watching his uncle who, who by most accounts and, and commentaries would say that, that Abram had more than him, so he had more wealth. And that made Lot look at what he has and it gives him discontentment. And that discontentment morphs and changes and turns into jealousy. And then jealousy turns into coveting. So Lot's given the opportunity to make a choice to go in a land that will lead him into safety, um, that will keep him far away from sin and destruction or a land that will require him to put all of his guards up because it is known to be a land of immorality, of sin, of destruction. But it looks pretty. And so his eyes begin to deceive him and his heart begins to covet. And he thinks, this is my chance. This is my opportunity to get mine. And so what does he do? His heart covets and he goes and he takes what he thinks belongs to him and he pitches his tent right next to the wickedness. He sees the canyon, he sees the impending destruction and he goes right up to the edge and he thinks, this is a good place to settle down. Eyes deceive, heart covets and then what our minds begin to do is our minds compromise. 
Look at verse 12. Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So close to the edge. A little further on in Genesis 19, we see a progression that happened. So in Genesis 13, we're left with this picture of of Lot being close to the edge, but he didn't fall over yet. We don't last there long, by the way, in case you didn't know that. Anybody else have that experience? We, We can't last on the edge very long. In chapter 19, it says that Lot is sitting at the gate. That doesn't sound like super uh, crazy, but I want to tell you something about how this culture works. Not only did Lot's family move into the city, we're going to see that in chapter 19, um, they're living in the city, but he's sitting at the gate. You know what that means? When, when a man would go and sit at the gate, that meant that he was in some sort of leadership within that culture and community. So not only did he move his family inside of the city of wickedness, but then he brought himself up in leadership. Now, now I am all for bringing the gospel to hard places, but this is different. He's not going into the city to bring the gospel to hard places. He is going into the city because he wants to be a part of the city. He has assimilated into the culture. We see this in the rest of his story. He has jumped in with both feet. He has jumped over the edge, and now he is living in the wickedness. He's experiencing the wickedness. He's experiencing a lack of wisdom and discernment. You see that in chapter 19, and I really encourage you to go finish and read the story. Because what we see is the unraveling of a man who once was a follower of God and now is all in to the city. His mind compromises. You know, I think this is why when we go into the book of Psalms and we see a man of wisdom like David, I think that this is why the the authors and the people that have compiled our scriptures put Psalm 1 in place in Psalm 1. It's a beautiful book, Psalms, of, of songs. And they resonate with our heart. And David is, is an author who we resonate with his heart because he, he just uh, loves the Lord and he is a real person that fails. And you know what he says in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3? He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does prospers. You see the progression here? Do you see it? It's Lot going towards the city, and he's walking on by. And all of a sudden, he's like, and... That once he was walking, now he's standing. And he's watching sin unfold. And then he begins to sit down and take a seat with all of the things that are going on. This is the progression of our sin. See, we do, uh, as, as believers, try to kind of skirt sin and walk around it and walk near it. But we always kind of keep our eyes on it, right? And so as we're walking by it, all of a sudden we're like, oh, what? And our eyes begin to deceive and our hearts begin to covet. And then we begin to entertain, right? And then we stop and we start to watch. We're just watching. I'm okay to watch, right? And so I watch. 
It's just kind of unfolding in front of me. I'm not participating until I'm asked to have a seat. And then what do I do? Just for a minute. Just, just uh, yeah, I'll have a water. And then we sit down. This is what the devil does. This is what the enemy does to every single one of us. Our eyes deceive, our hearts covet, our minds compromise. It's a part of each one of our stories. We stand so close to the edge that's impossible not to fail. And once we fail and fall, we feel like we cannot escape the pit that we're in. Like the monkey, we feel like we're, we're in a trap and we're trying to pull our hand out and we can't because we don't want to let go of the sin that so easily entangles us. There's a way out of the trap. It's to let go and trust God. And this is where God wins the battle for Lot. And this is where God wins the battle for us. God sends somebody to save Lot's family. He sends a messenger to save Lot and his family. They go in, into the city, to get Lot and his family and to bring them out. God sends these messengers to go. And the same is true for us. God didn't just send prophets. He didn't just send leaders. He didn't just send pastors. He didn't just send elders and deacons. He didn't just send his apostles. He came down himself. He came down and wrapped himself in human flesh so that he can tell us that he is here to rescue us. Rescue us out of the trap that our hand is trapped in. Rescue us out of that life of sin where we have sat down and we have surrounded ourselves with all of this muck and all of this wickedness. He has come to save us and he wants us to know that we can trust him. That he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is life, that the things that have entangled us in our lives, we all have them by the way, you're not exempt. The things that entangle us in our lives that they will not satisfy and they will not fulfill us, but the world has convinced us they will. And so he says, let go of those things and come with me for I will give you life and life to the full. But in order to do that, we need to let go of the wickedness and sin that so easily entangles us. You know, in 2 Peter 2, 7 through 9, we see Peter, one of the apostles, share about Lot's story. I want you to listen to this. I'm going to read it in the NLT. The NLT version is just a paraphrase. It's like a commentary. But I like the, the, how eloquent it is and how it articulates this. God rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man. The Greek there, actually, the word is Righteous who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. Are you there? Are you in that place? Because I know I have been and I am often where the world around me is just constantly at me like there's this like pending line in the bushes and I, I'm just waiting for him to pounce. 
He says, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. Listen, in your failures, in your sin, while you are trapped in Sodom, Jesus came to rescue you. Maybe we didn't hear that. In the worst of the worst, in the deepest of our brokenness, Jesus came to save us. He's not the hunter that's coming out to kill us. He's the one that's coming to rescue us before the hunter comes and gets us. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's why we gather here today to fix and focus our eyes on our Savior. And I love what Pastor Dave Harvey, Reverend Dave Harvey, he spoke here a couple weeks ago, says in one of his books, it says this, failure isn't simply God's nightstick to whack us into submission. It's an experience where we can discover God's love, his irresistible grace, and the true potency of the gospel. In all these failures, God draws us away from the opportunity for self-exaltation and teaches us that we rely on him for everything. So what's our response? What's, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to the fact that our eyes deceive and our hearts covet and our minds compromise? Well, first and foremost, keep away from the edge. Listen to the sign. Keep away from the edge. You know what the biblical language is around sin? The biblical language around sin, you ready for this? Put off, take off, guard yourself, be watchful, rid yourself, flee from, flee, run from. That's what it says about sin. It doesn't say stand and watch. It doesn't say sit down and kind of play with it. It doesn't say make a bed for it near your bed so it could be nice and cozy and comfy for a rainy day. It says run. Extreme as if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge it out. I think the reason why that language is so graphic is because God wants us to understand how it's better for us to lose a hand than for our whole body to go to hell. So he wants us to know that we need to keep away from the edge. Don't even get close to the edge. Second thing is we let go of what's holding us back. Stop being a monkey that thinks you're going to lose the prize. I think we have, a, like Gollum said, my precious, right? We have this thing that we don't want to let go. God is saying that we need to let go of from what's holding us back to being fully engaged with him and his mission and his purpose to seek and save the lost. And the biggest response, which is to trust Jesus. Trust Jesus and the family that he has placed around you. You know, the church is God's family. And I know that in a lot of stories, because I know a lot of you, that there has been some hurt. People have coined the term church hurt. And I want us to change our mindsets on that. People hurt you. And people are sinners. And guess what? This place is full of them. And if you think you're an exemption, you're not. You're actually probably the biggest one. We're sinners. We're all sinners. And we're going to let each other down. 
but I don't stop going to the gym because everybody at the gym's overweight or they're out of shape. No, I go there because I need to get in shape and stay in shape. We don't go to church because everybody's perfect. We go to church because everybody's broken sinners who are admitting the fact that they need a savior. That's the type of church we need to be. So we need to trust God and his family because he surrounded us with a group of people that are gonna help fuel each other to seek him as our highest priority. And when we mess up, the Bible says forgive 70 times seven. But that forgiveness is full. It's not forgiveness with taking a little bit of that resentment and bitterness and jealousy and putting it on the side for a rainy day. So we forgive and we journey together. We trust Jesus above all else and the family he has placed us in. I'm gonna invite Miguel, come back on up. I wanna share this last story, story of rescue from the Grand Canyon. Um, in the last decade or so, there's been about 80 falls at the Grand Canyon. Um, people that have gotten too close to the edge and have, have fallen, um, whether rocks have come out, they've slipped, or they just misstepped. Um, over the last decade, there's been, been about 80 of them. And there's, an, there's a little boy, he's 13 years old. Any 13 year olds here, around 13, teenagers? Yeah. He's 13 years old, he's vacationing with his mom when he slipped and tumbled over the side of the cliff and he went down about 100 feet, uh, tore up his whole face, broken bones everywhere, ruptured his spleen. I mean, I was gonna show a picture, but it was, it was too much. Um, it, was, it was pretty graphic on how hurt he got from this fall. But he didn't die but he was trapped 100 feet down. The, there were, um, the, the winds were too heavy and high um, to get helicopters in there, which is normally how they would come save somebody. And so a team of 40 people had to rally together to try to get down this 100-foot steep cliff slope and risk their own lives to help out this boy. See, he fell, he failed, he slipped, But then a team of people rallied around them, rallied around him and rescued him. Jesus has given us the ultimate rescue in himself. He has saved us. He has come into the depths of our brokenness and our sin so that we can have life. But he also gives us a family of people that should strap on the harnesses and the ropes and the gear to come down and help get us where we are. That's the type of church God is calling us to be. And that's the type of church we need to be. Because it's that type of church that loves one another like that, that will teach and show a lost and dying world out there that what happens here is better than what happens out there. You know, there's sometimes more of a sense of community in an AA meeting where they don't prescribe to, to uh, Jesus as their Lord and Savior than there will be inside of the church. And that's terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm super thankful that there's places like that that will show people acceptance and love. But that's what should define the church. The church should be the type of people that have open arms rallying around people, grabbing people that have fallen and say, hey, I'm going to come after you. I'm going to come and help you know that there is a Savior who loves you and doesn't want you to stay down there. Will we be that type of church? Will we be the type of church that will deal with our sin? Will we be the type of church that will come after one another after we have fallen? That's what God's calling us to.
Our hearts will be, will covet. Our eyes will deceive us. And our minds will begin to compromise and rationalize and do all sorts of things. But God has come to seek and save the lost. God has come to rescue us just like he came to rescue Lot. Will we submit? Will we trust? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be a people who don't stand close to the edge. That, that we would be the type of people that let go of what's holding us back and that we would trust you and you alone. There is nothing else in this world that will satisfy. So God, I pray that we would see the warnings that you give us, the signs, the warning signs that you have given us in the story of Lot, that we would guard our eyes, that we would let you fill our hearts and our minds so that we can trust you fully, without compromise, without rationalizing. God, we love you. Thank you for the time that we have to open your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.